Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Thought the choir did a great job with that, and that's a good way for us to begin to learn new hymns. I want to make a couple of comments on this particular hymn as you think about it. And as I pointed out in studies we've done in the past related to worship and music and hymns and why we sing the kinds of hymns that we sing, and we carefully select the music, and there are several people who are well-trained uh, musicians that I go to for advice and uh, information on, on hymns and music. We want to try to mirror and imitate the beauty, the complexity, as well as the simplicity of God's creation. Both of those things are true. We look at a rose and we see that in one sense it is simple, but in another sense it is complex. This mirrors both the complexity of the Trinity, which is extolled in the words of this hymn, it's a solid Trinitarian hymn, but also we see the simplicity or the unity uh, of God. So music needs to reflect both of those aspects because in the whole area of the, of the arts, we might say music, uh, drama, theater, these areas of human creativity, we are recognized we're creating the image and, and likeness of God, and so we are to reflect that in our creativity and not just go to things that are simple and easy. And as you notice, this tune is not the easiest, but it is quite beautiful. And so it will be uh, good when we have mastered this and sung this. But I also wanted to point out that, the, that it uh, is a good frame for the words and the thoughts in the words. This is a... Uh, uh, Alan said it was a Gregorian chant. According to the hymnal, I'm going to disagree with you. According to the hymnal, it's by, the text is by Aurelius Prudentius from the 4th century. That's the 300s. This is some three centuries before Gregory. So it wasn't a, couldn't be a Gregorian chant. But the, yeah, the music's 13th century. So the text reflects a very early 
uh, him in the church. And that's important for us when we sing things to recognize that uh, we have a connection to generations, centuries of Christians, and to cut ourselves off from, from hymns, good hymns. There are many traditional hymns that aren't necessarily good. As I pointed out before, it's not a matter of traditional or old versus new. It's a matter of quality, and it's a matter of reflecting the uh, character of God in both the music and sound theology in the words. So the words are a meditation on the Trinity, and that was one of the key issues in the 4th century. 325 was the Council of Nicaea when the eternality of Jesus was first solidly recognized in what they called ecumenical church-wide council. It had been recognized, of course, from the beginning in the New Testament and in the earlier centuries, but due to the false teaching of a man named Arius, who was teaching that Jesus was created at some time in eternity past, he wasn't therefore fully God, this was the focal point of the church, the conflict in the church in that century. And so it is a, a solid meditation on not only the Trinity, starting off with the Father and in the third verse, uh, focusing on uh, Christ to thee with God the Father, and, and we change the word there to Holy Spirit rather than uh, Holy Ghost. It is a solid uh, meditation on the Trinity, but it specifically focuses on, uh, on both the Father and the Son in their uh, equality. Uh, emphasizing that he is the Father is also Alpha and Omega, which comes out of uh, Revelation. And we are continuing our study this morning in the book of Revelation. So these kinds of hymns are important for us because they help us to focus our attention on who God is, what he has done in history, as well as during the time that we're studying through Revelation, trying to at times choose or select uh, hymns where the content relates to some degree to the content of uh, what we study in the book of Revelation. Well, having said that, by way of our beginning, we need to uh, make sure that we are ready to study God's Word. We always take a few moments of silent prayer before we begin our study of God's Word to make sure that we are in fellowship. Scripture teaches that if you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins then at that instant you have eternal life. God's Scripture says that you are given the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and on the basis of his righteousness we are declared justified. That is the doctrine of justification by faith. We are forgiven of all sins, not because of who we are or what we've done, but because of who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross. Based on his righteousness, which is given to us, we are declared just. That doesn't mean that we are perfect. It doesn't mean that you're, that Christians uh, are always going to do the right thing. It doesn't mean that we are infused with righteousness. It means that we are imputed. That is a legal term, meaning that that is what is credited to our account. And so God looks at Christ's righteousness instead of ours, and because of that, he declares us just. And we are forgiven because of the payment of Christ's on the cross. Now, we still live. We still have a sin nature. We still commit sins. And so as we live out our lives as children of God now, adopted into his royal family, when we sin, we break that fellowship with God. And just as any disobedient child needs to have a means of recovery, fellowship with parents, we have a means of recovering fellowship with God and that is through confession of sin. So confession of sin is a means of preparing us for the study of God's word and for worship. Scripture says if we confess our sins, and that means to God, it's not done publicly, it's not done to a human confessor, it is done uh, privately to God the Father, admitting or acknowledging our sin to him, that when we do that, he instantly forgives us of those sins we mention. And then he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That is the sins that we have not admitted, that we have not recognized were sins, sins we forget. God in his grace cleanses us from everything. It's a clean slate, and we can move forward. And God, the Holy Spirit's 
ongoing sanctifying or spiritual growth producing ministry in our lives uh, then is recovered. So we begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can be here this morning. It is your word that provides us with an absolute starting point for understanding everything in creation. As you have created it and as you are the creator God, you are the one who defines reality. For us, reality is aligning our thinking with your thinking, and you have revealed yourself objectively and clearly in your word that we might know truth. As our Lord Jesus Christ said, you shall know the truth in reference to your word. You shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Now, Father, as we study your word today, may we humble ourselves to what your word teaches, recognizing that you are the sovereign God of all creation and that we are merely finite creatures who need to be uh, in submission, orienting our thought to your thought, our lives to the way you have directed us that we might honor and glorify you in all that we say and do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. On the previous lesson last week, as we continue to look at this sixth seal judgment, I want to continue to look at it in terms of the results of this judgment and not yet get into the details of this particular judgment. thing that we see happening in this particular judgment is the response that occurs among the rich and the powerful as well as the uh, low and the poor. Everyone on the planet that is classified by this term that we saw last time in verses 10 and 11, that's classified as an earth dweller, is seen as a person who has set their volition, their will against God, and they are a class of people that are viewed as those who will not change. They will continue to be antagonistic to God and hostile to God throughout the remainder of their lives. That is not everybody on the planet. There are many others, as I pointed out, who live during the, this period known as the Great Tribulation, future seven-year period of judgment. There are many who live during that period who will finally come to understand the truth about who God is, who Jesus Christ is, and they will turn to him. That's that word that we find in Scripture called repent, it means to turn or to change. It doesn't mean to have remorse or to feel sorry for your sins or to go about some sort of self-flagellating religious activity. It means simply to turn and to recognize God is who he claims to be, Jesus Christ is who he claims to be, and to put your faith and trust in him. What we've seen in our past study is that unsaved man will harden himself in response to God's revelation, in response to the gospel, and he, his opposition to God will increase, and his opposition to those who trust in God will also increase during this particular period. We've been studying in the book of Revelation, and this is the period related to the uh, period known as the tribulation, which is a future time a time of seven years that occurs at an unspecified time in the future. It occurs after the rapture of the church, so those who are here now who have put their faith alone in Christ alone will be taken instantly to be with the Lord in the air, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 14 through 17. And subsequent to the rapture of the church, there will be a period of seven years of unprecedented war and horror and judgment on the earth to the point that if God did not intervene, according to what Jesus prophesied in Matthew 24, man would completely destroy himself. Now, 
just as a side note, we live in a world where people are consumed with all kinds of horror movies and movies about man's destruction of the planet and destruction of himself. And there are people who are running around wringing their hands in all sorts of uh, panicky attacks about the fact that if we don't all go green yesterday, then we will all, the human race will be destroyed in five or ten years. And there are several words we could use to apply to that. The Greek word is skubala. It's translated rubbish. It actually refers to manure. And uh, it's used by Paul in Philippians chapter 3, if you want to have a reference to that. But this is uh, the idea that God does not control the affairs of man or intercede or is in control of the planet. Things are going to end. There will be incredible environmental disasters in the tribulation period. Man will come close to self-annihilation, but it is going to happen according to the way God has described it in the book of Revelation. And this does not begin until after the rapture of the church and sometime uh, after the beginning of that seven-year period. And even though it is a time of unprecedented horror, unprecedented judgment, unprecedented misery and suffering. It's like taking all the disaster movies Hollywood has ever turned out, putting them all into one scenario, and then uh, multiplying it by a factor of a thousand. That's how bad it's going to be on the planet. The earth will come close to complete self-destruction. And the astro and astrological, astronomical rather, and geophysical disasters are just unimaginable. Uh, Hollywood can't even come close to the, They can come up with one, one scenario with one asteroid coming in and hitting, maybe hitting the planet. But that's nothing compared to what will actually transpire. And it is man's fault. It is man's fault because man has rejected God and rejected God's plan for man, and because man has rejected uh, salvation, and because mankind will set their heart completely against God, and this is divine judgment on the human race in order to deal ultimately and finally with the problem of evil. It is not simply that this is portraying a God who is vindictive, and seeking to obliterate man, but it is actually a form of divine grace that these judgments uh, will occur. And yet, in spite of these judgments and in spite of God's grace, there will be numerous people who will harden themselves in unbelief and in rejection of God. If you look at verse 16, you will see that the response of these earth dwellers is to call upon, to hide in the mountains and the caves and to call upon the mountains and rocks to fall on them and hide them from the presence of him who sits on the throne, that's God the Father, and from the wrath of the Lamb. And the terminology here, as we'll see when we deal with this in detail, relates to divine judgment. They are afraid of the judgment of God that is coming, and so they are calling upon the mountains and the rocks, to fall on them and hide them, because rather than submit to the authority of God, they would rather be destroyed and they would rather be killed physically. Now, last week I pointed out to you that the question you should be addressing to yourself as we go through this study is to decide how you want to respond to the Word of God. Are you going to trust in the Word of God as the one and only truth with a capital T and thus make your relationship to God through His unwritten Word, the heavens declare the glory of God, through His living Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, who became incarnate, the eternal second person of the Trinity who took on humanity and for the purpose of revealing God to us, and the written Word the Bible. When we respond positively toward God, then this becomes a priority in our lives. There are many people who have a facade of a relationship with God. They live a moral life. They go to church 
once a week. They go to church with the uh, Nod to God crowd on uh, Christmas and Easter and a few other times during the year. And they give God and religion lip service. And there are numerous people within institutional Christianity that are that way. But what we see is when this kind of judgment comes, as is portrayed in Revelation chapter 6, and this is just the initial series of judgments in the tribulation period, it is designed, as we've seen in Revelation chapter 3 verse 10, to expose their real character and their real motivation. And so that veneer of religion, that facade of Christianity, is going to drop away from those who are mere professors of Christianity, those who have uh, never trusted in Christ as their Savior. Now, a backdrop for understanding this is just to fit it within the context, so we'll just have a quick review here. There's the rapture of the church, and then we're into the period, the seven-year period of the tribulation. Chapter 6 of Revelation describes six seal judgments. The first is conquest, which is nonviolent followed by violence, warfare, taking peace from the earth, the second judgment, resulting in famine, worldwide famine, unlike any the world has ever seen. Fourth seal is death, uh, and these are the four horsemen that are seen initially as bringing this judgment. Now, all of these are the result of human activity, but God has taken away his restraint. We know from Second Thessalonians chapter 2 that the Antichrist is not revealed and that the events of the tribulation do not transpire until the one who restrains, the text says, is removed. Now, the one who restrains is God the Holy Spirit, but the point that I'm emphasizing is there is a restraint by God of evil within the human race until this point. Once the rapture of the church occurs then the Holy Spirit is removed and God is going to take his restraints off of man and man's inhumanity to man, his potential for tyranny and cruelty and dominance like Hitler dreamed of, as Stalin dreamed of, as Saddam Hussein dreamed of, will reach its culmination. It's never, God has never allowed uh, men to ever fulfill those dreams that they have had of dominating the human race, and it will only occur during this period of the tribulation. And so what we see in the first five seal judgments, the fifth seal judgment being that of martyrdom, as the world government of that time unleashes its fury against all of those who worship God, all of those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and as we've seen, there will be millions who will be slaughtered during the, this period of time, just the first two uh, years of the tribulation period, a slaughtering of Christians that will make the slaughtering of Jews in the Holocaust pale in comparison. And then there is an intensification that occurs with the sixth seal judgment, astronomical and physical, geophysical disturbances on the earth that are the direct results of, of God's more direct intervention as opposed to the indirect intervention of simply removing the restraint of evil. This is a more active uh, intervention by God, and the result is, as you, will, you see down in verse 15 and 16, is that the rulers, the leaders, the people on the earth who are the earth dwellers, these will rebel against God even more. It will cause them not to turn to him, but to turn even more against them as they are enmeshed in their anger. And they will know by that point, it will be clear to them that these judgments that they have been going through, the crises, the adversities, the all of the wars and famines are the result of God's judgment. They will know this, and they will shake their fist in the face of God and resist him even more. 
key to understanding this passage is this phrase, those who dwell on the earth. We studied this in detail the last couple of weeks, that this refers to this class of hardened unbelievers. Not all the unbelievers on the earth, not all, it doesn't refer to just those who live on the earth, but it is a phrase that is used throughout the book of Revelation to point to these who are hardened in their negative volition. And in Revelation 3.10, back in the letter to the Philadelphian church, they are promised that God will keep you, keep the, that is the Philadelphian, keep them from the hour of testing. That's a technical term for this tribulation period. It refers to the fact that church-age believers will not go through the tribulation. I will keep you also from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. And we saw that the word here in the Greek for testing is the Greek word perazo, which indicates test, an objective test to scrutinize, to assay, to examine, to prove something. It has the idea of putting something to the test to reveal its essential nature or characteristic. God is going to put these judgments on the earth to expose the real orientation of the hearts of mankind. There are those who are hardened, who are the earth dwellers, and their hostility to God will be exposed. But there are, as I said, millions of others who will respond to the grace of God during this period, and they will put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior. This is not simply a harsh judgment from God, because as we'll see again and again, God's judgment is always preceded by his grace, and his grace is, goes far beyond anything we could imagine. And as, and in fact, the testing, the sufferings are even part of God's grace. Bob Thomas, Dr. Robert Thomas, in his commentary on Revelation, states regarding these trials that the trials of this period are designed to test the wicked, either to lead them to repentance, that means to change their mind about God and about Jesus Christ, or to punish them for failing to repent. See, that's grace. We often think of grace as merely the positive uh, motivation or circumstances that God gives. But grace involves not only the carrot, but also the stick. Not only the positive uh, encouragement that God provides in, in order to get our attention, but also the stick of divine discipline and adversity to force us to put our attention on him. And often we don't respond to the carrot, and too often we all recognize that God has to use that stick approach because that's what really gets our attention. So both are part of God's grace. God gives us the freedom to believe without the harshness of the stick, but the stick is designed that once the positive uh, motivational uh, attractions have failed, then God begins to lower the boom. But lowering the boom on unbelievers as well as believers is designed to get us, to motivate us, to encourage us to turn to him. But too often what happens is rather than turning to him, those who have their hearts set in arrogance, those whose volition is determined against God, those who are resisting him, simply harden their resistance. They stiffen their resistance. They become more obstinate and recalcitrant, and they refuse to listen to God, and they stiffen their necks against him. And this kind of terminology is applied to both believers and unbelievers in the Scripture. And the Jews in the Old Testament, as believers, were often referred to as stiff-necked and rebellious, not because they weren't saved, but because after salvation, they took the path of arrogance and resistance to God. Now, before we go any further, I want to just give us a brief flyover of this sixth seal. And so we'll just read through these verses from 6.12 to 6.7. What we see here is that the physical disturbances involve uh, six different things. There is a great earthquake at the beginning. The sun becomes black as sackcloth. The moon turns red like blood. Stars, actually comets or asteroids, is the same word, fall to the earth. The sky then is split 
like a scroll, something causes some sort of reaction in the upper atmosphere, and there is an enormous geophysical tectonic shift that takes place, such that John describes it as mountains and islands move out of their place. And remember, this is only the beginning of the birth pangs, as Jesus identified it in the first 12 verses of Matthew 24. And he said in Matthew 24 that there would be these earthquakes. And some people have thought that, well, we'll see that as a sign of the times and that we look at, uh, go to USGS and look at the uh, seismographic reports on earthquakes around the world for the last 200 years and that there's an increase in the number of earthquakes. And so that indicates that we're getting close. Now, that's, there's a lot of dispute over a lot of that da- data, but even so, uh, that is irrelevant because what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24 is signs within that period of the tribulation that portend his coming at the end of that seven-year uh, period. So you can't look to geophysical disturbances today as a sign of the soon coming of Jesus Christ. Let's look at the text. Revelation 6.12 John says, I looked when he, that is the Lamb, the risen, resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, who is now being given the title deed, that is the scroll that he holds to the earth. He's opening the seals on that title deed. As we've seen, I looked, John says, when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. Verse 13, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Verse 14, and the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their place. And then we come to what I'm focusing on now is the response of the earth dwellers. In verse 15, and the kings of the earth, notice the different categories of people here, it's all inclusive the kings of the earth, the rulers, and that's an important term that will connect in a few minutes to Psalm 2. The kings of the earth and the great men, that is the captains of industry, the great men and the commanders, this is the military commanders, the generals, the uh, leaders of the armies, the commanders and the rich, these are the wealthy, the industrialists, the Uh, investors, these are the ones who have the great financial resources. And the strong, these are the ones who have power, political power. And every slave and free man, that includes everybody else, not just the rich and the powerful, but every slave, that is every laborer, every worker, every everyone who is impoverished, and every free man. In other words, no one is left out into this categorization. There are some from every classification who fit into this earth-dweller category, and they will hide themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Now, if the earth is moving in this way, that's the last place I would go. But see, arrogance, arrogance is blinding. So, They hide themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And I think this may even relate to the fact that many nations have burrowed deep into the ground in order to uh, have various strongholds and fortifications. For example, we have Cheyenne Mountain up outside of of, uh, uh, Colorado Springs where deep inside the mountain there's a command post. If there's a national disaster, the president flies there, a number of other uh, generals can get there, and this they can run uh, run a war from that base. And other nations have this kind of thing as well. So this may be an allusion to that kind of uh, event where they head deep into the earth, where they think they are safe and secure. But here they realize there is no security. They are motivated by fear. And in verse 16 we read, They said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne. Notice the arrogance. They think that they can hide from the sovereign, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God who will judge all the living and the dead. Hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne. They would rather die in misery in their arrogance 
than submit to the authority of God. And there are a lot of believers who are that way. They would, they're glad they're saved, but they would rather live their life the way they want to than to make Bible doctrine and the Word of God a priority in their life. Fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Now, this is an important term. We will get into this a little more as we go through this section. Wrath is a term that doesn't refer to the fact that the Lamb is having a hissy fit over man's rebellion. He's not losing his temper. He is not angry in that sense. It is an expression of the harshness of divine justice that it is certain. And because this comes from the throne of God, we do not want a God who is responding emotionally. We want a God just like any judge who is responding objectively and on the basis of eternal principle. But just as we have the idioms related to harshness of human justice that somebody threw the book at us, and we don't have judges standing up at their bench and picking up a book and throwing it at the defendant, uh, it is simply a figure of speech to express the, that they are <clears throat> receiving judgment from the full extent of the law. From the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Now that is an interesting question. After we look at the details of these judgments, which will come in the coming weeks, it's a good question to say, this seems like this is a total disaster on the planet. Who could survive? Who could stand? Who could go on? This, this has got to be describing the very end of the tribulation period. But the trouble is, we're only in chapter 6. We're only at the sixth seal judgment. We still have to go through the seven trumpet judgments and then the seven bowl judgments. We're only in the first part of the tribulation period. The worst is yet to come. And yet, despite the grace that God has given in the proclamation of his word, when we get into chapter 7, we will see that during this time, God has sealed 144,000 Jewish evangelists who are already taking the truth of his word and the gospel throughout the earth. We will see that in... Uh, Revelation chapter 11 and 12, that there are two witnesses. Many believe that they are the resurrected Moses and Elijah who are proclaiming the truth of God's word. And there is a phenomenal witness on the planet, and yet there are those who have hardened their heart completely against them. Now, what we see whenever we start talking about this issue of the hardening of the heart. There's a lot of questions about the dynamics of the hardening of the heart, just who hardens the heart. There are passages that come to mind related to Old Testament judgments, the judgments that God brought upon the Egyptians when he was freeing the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt in those passages that we'll look at in a moment related to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And it sounds to many people as if somehow God is interfering with the volition of man that he's reaching down and flipping a switch, which is going to intensify the uh, negative volition of Pharaoh and that Pharaoh is, Pharaoh's volition is uh, completely out of order. So we have to look at this concept because the understanding the dynamics of a hardened heart are important not just in terms of what happens in the future or what happened in the past. But there's the ongoing challenge and exhortation and warning of the writer of Hebrews to church-age believers, do not harden your heart as the Israelites did at Meribah and Massa. Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4 repeats that warning from Psalm 95 Three different times it quotes that. So this is a very present warning that isn't just addressed to unbelievers, but is also addressed uh, to believers. Now, before we look at that specifically, we have to have another little framework orientation of Scripture. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. For what we see happening 
And the sixth seal here is related to a prophecy that is given by the writer of the psalm in Psalm chapter 2 by David. And it is a picture in the prophetic mind of David of what is going to transpire at the end time. Psalm 2 is a tremendous psalm for many different reasons. It is a crucial psalm for understanding the eternality and the full deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, that there never was a time when Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, existed as full, equal deity with God the Father. He did not come into existence at some point in time or at some point in eternity. He is fully God of fully God. He is undiminished deity, which means he is uh, he is eternal and has all of the same omni-attributes as God the Father. And so David, as the author of the psalm, according to Acts chapter 4, verse 25, David is the author. David sees what human history will culminate in. The battle between the kings of the earth on the one hand and the king of the earth on the other hand, that the human kings have been conspiring throughout history to establish the kingdom of man. And we can trace that, and we have traced that in studies we've done in Genesis and other Old Testament studies. The kingdom of man seeks to establish uh, world peace, world harmony, uh, need solve all the health problems of man. The kingdom of man seeks for itself that which only God can give. And we have always in every generation, we have kingdoms and institutions that have established themselves and claim for themselves messianic capabilities. Uh, currently, we have the United Nations that has carved over its uh, entryway the quote from Isaiah chapter 2, that you shall beat your uh, swords into plowshares and your uh, spears into pruning hooks, and man will learn war no more. That verse relates to what will transpire when Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel, comes to the earth at the second coming to establish his kingdom upon the earth. And until then, there won't be peace on the earth because the prince of peace, the king of peace, will not establish his kingdom of peace on the earth. And so until that time, there will be uh, wars and rumors of wars, despite all of the messianic pretensions of politicians throughout the ages and kings of the earth. And so they are pictured here as coming to this boiling point, this this final con- confrontation and conflagration that will occur at the end time. So we look at the beginning of Psalm 2. The question that is raised is, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? And this word for vain is a word that is it indicates just a vapor, something that uh, just lasts momentarily like the breath that you see coming out of your mouth on a cold winter's day. That's vapor. It's something that is ephemeral, that has no lasting significance. It's translated in the Greek of the Old Testament with the Greek word matiotes, which again indicates vanity, emptiness, that which has no lasting value. Why are the nations devising this vain thing? What's the vain thing? To establish a kingdom that will bring peace, prosperity, happiness, and health to the human race. That is described in the Bible as pure vanity. It is the self-deception of arrogant earth dwellers who reject God and his word. This leads to this confrontation. Verse 2, the kings of the earth take their stand. And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Messiah. Literally, this is the Hebrew word Mashiach, meaning the anointed one or the appointed one. And so this is what we see happening in verses 15 and 16 of Revelation chapter 6. 
is that these rulers are taking counsel. How can they finally defeat God who is interfering in their plans and their agenda? Agenda, And what they are saying is vocalized in verse 3, let us tear their fetters apart. That is, they view God as restrictive. God won't let me have fun. God is just this God who's always telling me what I can do and I can't do. And these are viewed as bonds, as restraints. And so man in his arrogance wants to remove himself from the authority of his creator. And so it's vocalized as let us tear their fetters apart, cast away their cords from us against God. Now, the next section of the psalm, and I'm not doing a detailed exegesis of that. I think the next time Ike's up, Ike is going to go through this psalm in detail. We see the response of God in verses 4 through 9. God is not a politically correct God. I want you to notice that. This is one reason why Christians who are biblical Christians will become more and more antagonistic to the world culture around us because as the world culture around us seeks to reduce all religions and philosophies to the same uh, bland mush, the reality is that the Bible says there is one and only one way to God. And that just rubs arrogant man's nose in the truth. And arrogant mankind doesn't like that because arrogant mankind wants to make up his own truth. And that's what characterizes these kings. And so the response of God is that he sits in the heaven and laughs at them. He scorns them. He derides them. He makes fun of these puny little creatures who think that they can somehow throw off their fetters and violate the authority of God. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh, and the Lord shall hold them in derision. He shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. What is God's solution? God's solution is the establishment of his kingdom and the destruction of the kingdom of man. That's what's pictured, as we've seen in Daniel chapter 7, when the Ancient of Days is going to roll up and destroy the kingdoms of the earth as he sends this Son of Man, this title for the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, to destroy the kingdoms of the earth and to establish his kingdom. And so God says, yes, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Notice the speaker is the Lord as distinct from his Messiah, this is uh, God the Father speaking. He has set his king on his holy hill of Zion. We sang the hymn this morning, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, related to Zion, city of God. This is where God has set his dwelling place on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, the holy temple. He has established my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree... There's a change in speakers here. The speaker in verse 7 is the king, the Messiah. And he is reflecting upon the fact that he had the Lord, God the Father, has made a decree. The Lord has said to me, in other words, God the Father has said to me, God the Son, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And that idea of begottenness is not birth. It is not a beginning. It is the idea of establishing his uh, kingdom, his inauguration, as it were. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. That is exactly what's happening during the tribulation period. The kings of the earth are going to be broken with a rod of iron because... Nothing else will work. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, that sounds like this harsh, judgmental God the liberals will tell you about, liberal theologians will tell you about, dominates the Old Testament, that that's really a different God from the kind, benevolent, gracious God that you see in the New Testament. And that's just hogwash because they don't know how to read the Bible. What we have is the kind, benevolent God who always precedes his justice with the offer of mercy and grace. He is not 
two different gods or a split personality. He offers complete forgiveness to the rebels, to all mankind, to those who have disobeyed him. But it's on his terms, not their terms. Man wants it to be on our terms. And so we see this grace of God in Psalm 2, verses 10 through 12. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. This is the offer. It continues through the tribulation period. There is the constant offer of salvation and deliverance to those who have hardened their heart to the earth dwellers. God doesn't say, well, you've just locked yourself into negative volition, so I'm going to quit. He will continue throughout the tribulation period, as we have seen, even to the point where near the end he will send angels throughout the heavens declaring the gospel, calling people to turn to God before it is too late. And so here is the, uh, the, here is the exhortation to these kings. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. The parallelism there indicates that he's talking to the rulers, the rich, the powerful, the politicians, not just royalty. Verse 11, worship the Lord. That's the call to change, to submit to the authority of God. Worship the Lord. Actually, the word in Hebrew means to serve. It's that Greek word, I mean Hebrew word, abad, meaning to serve the Lord with fear, literally, not just reverence, but it's that reverential awe and fear, recognizing the authority of God and rejoice with trembling. Notice the phrase rejoice with trembling is parallel to worship with reference. Do homage to the Son that he may not become angry, that is, execute the wrath of the Lamb, Against you, and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. God's grace always precedes judgment, and his grace is extensive enough to cover all things. So what we see is that there is always this clash between God as the ruler of all history, his sovereignty, and man. The Old Testament, we see this exemplified in the conflict between God and Pharaoh. God, who is called Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one who entered into a covenant with Abraham that he would bless all peoples through his descendants and give him a specific piece of real estate over on the uh, east shore of the Mediterranean between the Euphrates and the Mediterranean between Egypt and Babylon and that this would be an eternal possession for God's people Israel. Now, this is the one to whom the term Lord uppercase refers. Now, when God is going to deliver the Jews who are slaves at this point in Egypt, The Lord said to Moses, now when you go back to Egypt, this is during that period when Moses has been in Midian for 40 years going through his humility training, and now it is time to send him back to Egypt. He says, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And then again in Exodus 7.3, God says, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. And in 10 verses later in Exodus 7.13, we see the passive form of that same verb, Pharaoh's heart, was hardened. Now, these passages have been at the heart of a lot of controversy and debate. There are many Christians and theologians who've puzzled over this and say, well, this looks like God is interfering with Pharaoh's volition, that somehow he's reaching in there and locking him in, hardening him. But that is not true. That is only because of a certain perception. It tells us that God hardens Pharaoh's heart, but it doesn't tell us how. That's the difference. See, people leap to this conclusion that that means God reaches in and flips his... uh, Yes button to no and locks it down. But that's not what happens. Let's look at the words just briefly. One word that is translated harden is the Hebrew word chazak in the PL stem, which is an intensification form, which means to strengthen, to fortify, to reinforce. Another word that is used is kasha 
and the hithiel, which means to cause, to make hard or heavy or to strengthen or make strong. And so these words basically have the idea of someone becoming obstinate, being set in their arrogance and their stubbornness. Now, is God the one who's initiating this with Pharaoh? I don't think so. Remember, Pharaoh is a god in Egyptian mythology. Pharaoh is the head of the Egyptian pantheon, and he is an incarnation of the god. He has already immersed himself into all of the pagan idolatry of one of the uh, worst forms of paganism that existed in the ancient world. So to get an understanding of who hardens Pharaoh's heart, we have to go back to that passage that I keep going to in this study of Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we see that it is man that ultimately and initially hardens his own heart. First point that we see in Romans 1, 18 and following is that human history is the arena for the execution of divine judgment against sinful, rebellious mankind. It is within human history that God judges man, as well as outside in terms of eternal judgment. So in Romans 1.18, we see this phrase again. We saw the wrath of the Lamb and the wrath of the throne of God in Romans uh, Revelation 6 with the sixth seal. We saw the wrath of God and the wrath of his Messiah in Psalm 2. And now Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed ongoing throughout history, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of a certain class of men, men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, this class of men are comparable to the earth dwellers. They are those who are negative to God and God consciousness and who continue to be negative to God throughout the rest of their life, hardening themselves against God. Well, what does that hardening look like? Well, that hardening is clarified in uh, verses 19 and following. And what we see is the reason for this particular wrath. And point number one was that human history is the arena for the execution of divine judgment against sinful, rebellious mankind. Point two in this passage is that the reason for the wrath or the judgment is that the majority of the human race are truth, truth suppressors, not tongue suppressors, truth suppressors. They are antagonistic to the truth as God has defined it. Now, there's so many illustrations I could use from just contemporary events in the morning newspaper as we see scientists and legislators and rulers throughout the earth just climb, fighting, clawing their way onto the bandwagon of global warming and all of these other environmental causes that have no support in science because they are all predicated on Darwinism. All of these concepts, everything that they're coming to is predicated on some form of Darwinian interpretation of biology, geology, physics, etc., and therefore it's operating on a completely fallacious framework for understanding reality. Now, they're truth suppressors. This verse says that, verses... um, Verse 21 tells us that they know that God exists. They know he is there. They know that he is, uh, they're not just wondering. They've suppressed that truth, though. They know God exists. They have more than enough evidence, and yet they have rejected him. This is what Pharaoh has already done prior to Exodus 4. It doesn't mean in Exodus 4 that God is going to harden his heart, that he's locking him into negative volition so he cannot turn to God. But what it shows is that in Pharaoh's stubborn negative volition, he's already locked himself down in response to God's grace. Each of these judgments, the ten plagues that we see in Exodus, are manifestations of God's grace, and each time Pharaoh has the opportunity to change and return to God, but he won't. 
These ten plagues are all warning shots across Pharaoh's bow to get his attention, but each one causes him to react by hardening his heart. In Romans 1, 21 to 23, we see what the progression is. That they, these truth suppressors, the earth dwellers, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. See, that's an active voice verb. They don't honor God. They don't give thanks. They're the ones who perform the action of the verb. And the result of that is seen in the passive tenses, or passive voice of the next two verbs. They became futile in their speculations. Now, that's not really a good word, speculation. It's dialogismos in the Greek, which has to do with their reasoning powers. See, when you've rejected God and the truth of God's word, you are reasoning on false assumptions. So even though your system may logic be logically consistent, it's built on a on a foundation of quicksand, and therefore it is totally fallacious. But people will be impressed with it because it's internally logical. But their rationale is completely empty because it's based on a false presupposition. So they become futile in their reasoning, and their foolish heart is darkened. There's no light there. There's no truth there. It is completely fallacious. Professing to be wise, they have triple PhDs from Cambridge, Harvard, Stanford, but they are fools because they have rejected God. The fool, the psalmist said, has said in his heart, there is no God. And they have exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Now, if you ever look at all of the different gods and goddesses in the Egyptian pantheon, this describes it perfectly. And this is exactly what Pharaoh had already done. He had rejected God, rejected the non-verbal, non-literal communication of God in his non in, in the general revelation, and he has uh, exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and he's worshiping the creature rather than the, the creator. So he begins the process, and what happens is that God uses his revelation through his judgments to harden Pharaoh's heart. The question isn't that does God reach in and tweak his volition, but God, through his revelation, intensifies his already present negative volition. But it is Pharaoh who reacts. He could change at any moment. But because he is enmeshed in arrogance, he won't. That's true not only of unbelievers, but it's also true of believers. Next time, we'll look at another example of hardening that comes out of Exodus in Exodus chapter 17, the incident at Massa and Meribah, and that's relationship to what the writer of Hebrews says. We'll also connect that to some things in the New Testament to show that this isn't just a doctrine that is related to the ancient history of the Old Testament, but that it goes all the way through the Old Testament, goes through the incarnation of Christ, goes to the epistle to the Hebrews written for church-age believers today and continues on into the future. That this is a problem that man has is in arrogance we resist God. We resist the truth of his word and we think that somehow we can live our lives by just giving lip service to God, just having a facade of Christianity and positive volition, which is true of many believers, or we can shake our fist in God's face and have no relationship with him at all, and live in the fantasy world that there's no God and no accountability. But judgment day is coming. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study these things in your word, the clarification that your word gives us, as we see that all of history is indeed the outworking of your plan and purposes, and that throughout history there is the constant uh, constant interference of your grace to call man to change, to turn to you, and to respond to your authority. And ultimately that happens for each of us with the claim of Christ, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to the Father 
except through him. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity right now to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. While he hung there on the cross, God the Father imputed to him the sin of every human being. Every sin you've committed was imputed to Jesus Christ, and he had you in mind and paid the penalty for your sin when he was there on the cross. So the issue now isn't what you've done. The issue is what you believe. Do you believe that Jesus died for you? If you believe that Jesus died for you and that his death is sufficient to save you, then you have eternal life. It's as simple as that. Don't make it complex. Don't try to get around the grace of God by inserting your own efforts, your own morality, your own life. The issue is not you. The issue is God's grace and your response to it. Father, we pray that you challenge us with the things we've studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.